And it's a pleasure to be with you all. It's always a pleasure to be at any AA event. Um, last year I had to cancel a bunch due to health reasons. So this year I'm looking forward to going back and visiting and revisiting. Uh, after you've been around a while, you suddenly realize you're coming back. <laughs> and so I remember this room. And it's nice. It's nice to remember anything. Um, I came into um, AA up in Washington, D.C. on December 7th, 1964. And I'm one of those that just came in, didn't bother going back out. Seemed to make more sense that way. But I guess other people feel differently. <laughs> and I had the same sponsor for 42 years. His name was Bill Tewilliger. He was another Marine. And we had a, quite a run together. I always mention his name now because he was so important to me. Anybody, you have that long with your sponsor, you're a very fortunate member of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. After you've been around AA for a while, you start reflecting on the whole experience and the fellowship and this society of recovered alcoholics that is now all over the world. And uh, I remember I was so disinterested in history. I remember when they were teaching it in high school or somewhere, and I meant, what do I want to study history for? It already happened. You know, I want to know what science is going to invent or something. That seems stupid to study history. And I was so disinterested that I didn't take the time and go meet Bill Wilson. All my other friends are going up to New York and Bill Wilson dinner, and uh, I'm going to myself. Who wants to meet Bill Wilson? <laughs> I got problems here. I got all these six kids. <laughs> I got these six kids. I don't have enough money. It would have cost me $75 probably by train to round trip to go up there. So you fast forward about 15 years, and guess who wishes that he had met Bill Wilson and um, become attracted to AA history earlier? We have a little group in Tampa just started by accident because the group was so small, a little discussion. We'd get through going around the room in about 35 minutes, so we tried to find a way of stretching the time of the meeting. And somebody came up with the idea of having each member look up something about AA history, even if they're only three months sober, do some research on it, and come to the meeting and give a report. And they bring handouts and all this kind of stuff. And it's really fascinating. Uh, I have learned... Um, a great deal just from people who went on the Internet and somebody came in with the menu for the Rockefeller dinner. Now, how do you like that? That was pretty good. <laughs> somebody else had an iPod and they were um, playing Bill's talk after Dr. Bob died. And we had a couple of new people who were almost in tears. They said, I never thought I would ever hear Bill Wilson. They didn't realize we had it on CD. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. 
So now I find myself very fascinated with um, the history, and I'll tell you, I'm not going to talk about history lesson or anything, but it's impossible to look at AA history without seeing God. It's just almost impossible. There's too many coincidences. There's too many events that you, you know, that our co-founder, they wanted to go this direction and they get stopped because it turns out it's better to go in this direction. And um, I got thinking about the word history. His story. This is just part of God's story. And we're part of it. And when we look at that, God is everything or he's nothing. Either is or he isn't. What is your choice? Isn't that an interesting way to um, describe God? What is your choice? And uh, I know in the beginning I'm going, so you could choose God, right? Just like that. Out of the blue. And my sponsor said, yeah, that's correct. That's how we start our relationship. I said, well, I, uh, he said, did you choose God uh, when you were growing No, I didn't. Well, how did you make that decision? Did you see a non-burning bush? Did a voice come down and say, I do not exist? <laughs> you just freaking decided, right? And I realized I had. And when I made that decision, there was no evidence of God anywhere. You could have asked me, have you ever experienced God? And I'd say, no. And I wouldn't have been lying. Because I created my own reality. I decided there was no such thing. I went to church and I said, this is ridiculous. And so I just went about my business um, following the, the, the what I thought were the rules of life that nobody's going to live your life for you. It's up to you. You want to make something out of yourself. You're the guy that has to do it. Death of that. And um, if you apply yourself, where's your pride? I got in the Marine Corps, the few, the proud. I didn't know it was a character defect. When I came here and they said, pride's a character defect, I said, what are you trying to do, undermine the U.S. Marine Corps? Is this a communist organization? So I followed what other people did, and that was, you got to do it by yourself. And you can accomplish a lot by yourself. I thought I did. I I got through a lot of things. But I was never happy. Happiness was going to happen. It's just this close. One more promotion. Get out of grammar school. When I get to high school, then I'll be happy. When I get to high school, oh, this sucks, so you don't get happy here. This is, this is not it. But when I get to college, you remember that? It was just... And then watching the advertisers. Of course you're not happy. You don't have this. Well, I'll get that. So there's the problem with self-sufficiency. You can get a lot of results except happiness. You can get a lot of results except being part of something. You can get a lot of results except a relationship with God. And so when they tell us 
What's your choice? It's time to abandon the old one and see what happens when we make this choice. And uh, that's exactly what you do in Alcoholics Anonymous. You change your mind, you make the new choice, and then you compare results. Pretty scientific. You follow what I'm saying? That's fairly logical. I made that other choice. I got these lousy results, so I'll make a new choice. And that's how the doorway opens. Because to make that choice, we have to have an open mind. And so that's why I get a big kick out of um, looking at AA history. And if you're new, you'll get some of our books. We got some wonderful history books that'll take you through. And I'm sure somewhere there's the history of AA in Kentucky and in the various states. And just look at it and see how improbable it was that some salesman came through town with instructions from Bill Wilson to start AA in this city because you're going to be passing through, find a couple drunks, get a meeting started, and move on. And it worked. Look how improbable it is that somebody would get that book in the mail and follow the instructions and have a spiritual awakening and go pass it on to somebody else. Even Bill expressed great surprise that the book actually worked. (laughs) But it was written to the person who was going to receive it in the mail. And um, I just tell you, there's a sales job on working with others in the very beginning when Bill's talking about, now comes the best part. To watch a whole society spring up around you, you have to go get the society. (laughs) You have to go find the people who are going to comprise this society. But he made it sound so exciting that people were going to hospitals or somewhere, and i got to get a couple of drunks and get society started here. (laughs) And they did. Now, a lot of it came about with people traveling. But, I mean, you just look at this and you just go, see, today it's so big that we just sort of take it for granted. And we do. We take it for granted. And we forget early on how frightened they were that it might come apart, that something could, you know, there was a lot of, um, I guess prejudice is a bad word, but there was a lot of fear. In other words, if a guy had a job, you'd go, I'm not sure that we can... None of us have jobs. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't let him be a member. This is this is what I meant. In other words, anything that could rock the boat. And so it took a while, but it wasn't long before we had one of everything. And you read that in the traditions and the various characters that came along, and uh, AA adjusted to it. And so it's. Um, it's a fascinating it's fascinating to look at that at least it is to me because i just see the hand of god everywhere and i like to talk about god because it's the most important word in the big book as far as i'm concerned the point of our book is to enable us to find a power The one result of the 12 steps is a spiritual awakening. It doesn't say having gotten sober 
as a result of these steps. It says, having had a spiritual awakening. If you want sobriety, punch a cop. You'll be sober. You'll, you'll have 30 days sobriety before you know it. So that's not what we're talking about here, is abstaining from drinking. We're talking about a transformation so that the idea of a drink doesn't enter our mind. We're not fighting anything. Something remarkable has happened to us so that there are no problems for alcohol to fix. We're satisfied with today the way it is. And it puts us in a wonderful position. Since um, we're not waiting for tomorrow to fix something, we're free to pass it on to other people. And I'd like to think... um, when I think about AA history, I think about the, you know, all the scientists now have just about explained everything. And they're taking great delight in that. It used to be that the science couldn't fill in the gaps, so we would say, well, that's the way God wanted it. So we'd always play the God card to explain the places. So now they've filled them all in with a few exceptions. And they call those exceptions singularities, if you haven't heard that word. It's a situation that simply can't be explained. (laughs) Because the laws of science and physics don't apply there. And, of course, the Big Bang was one of them. We can start a millionth of a second after the Big Bang, but we can't go back to zero, nor can we explain how it got started. So we... uh, just use the word singularity. And the same thing for a black hole. Well, singularities to me sounds like you can't explain it, you make up a word, and you use it and move on. So I think we can use God the same way, that um, it fits in perfectly. I had no idea what other people were talking about when I got here in terms of an awakening. I had some vague idea that it was um, some explosive thing that might happen if you stayed in the desert long enough. But I, I just, until it happens to, a, to yourself, it's just a theory. You can see that other people are so thrilled about it, and you can see that they have something that you want. But it's still hard to come to grips with until this actually happens. And I think it happens in a a fashion similar to the end of our promises. We suddenly realize God's doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Up until that point, it seemed like a lot of coincidences and certain things have happened in my life, and it may be because I'm a little healthier or this or that. But then comes a moment when we suddenly realize, no, it's not that. This is what the people of AA have been talking about, and I just had it happen. Now it's no longer a theory. 
Now it's an experience. So for those of you that are new, when we say the word God in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't have a meaning for the word. If there's 1,500 people in here, we have 1,500 meanings. And yet we keep using the same word because it's sort of universal. It's been around forever. And it means something beyond us. And in AA, it's without a definition. It just sits there as a word. But after we have that experience, now we know the word. It's almost as if the word became real. It just, oh yeah. And this is what I tell the people I sponsor, I guarantee that's going to happen to them. We start out by saying, I am going to show you how to have a spiritual experience. And we're going to follow these steps, and you're going to be amazed before you're halfway through. And we just start down the path. And I like to do that because I think it opens the door sooner to this type of an event happening. So you hear me up here tonight talking about all these things. I obviously didn't know anything about this when I got here. I wouldn't have been able to converse in about any of these things. Like everyone else, I was a person who had found alcohol and it solved all my problems in life. And like everybody else, I had the same problem. I didn't fit in. I didn't belong. I was restless, irritable, and discontent. I didn't feel adequate. Everybody else knew what was going on. They left me out. They didn't fill me in. Wherever I was, the other, those guys know what's going on. And they won't tell me. Because I never knew what was going on. I was just hanging around wondering if I could get a glimpse of what's going on. After three drinks, I knew what was going on. I was on the end. I was standing over there, and if you'd asked me, do you know what's going on? I'd say, yes. I finally know what's going on. And I belong, and I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not different anymore. And my creativity has been freed. I can be myself. I'm not holding back. And that's what I remember. And I was 19 years old. I was, the, I was at, um, in college. And I was very uncomfortable there. And I was at this social event, and I was afraid to hardly talk to anybody. Because I looked at people's faces, and I saw they didn't want to know me. That was good enough for me. I'm not going to bother you. If that's how you feel, let's just leave it that way. And um, if you run into that situation, just leave. That's all you have to do. The anxiety will drop immediately. Just leave. Of course, later on, you're going to feel bad about yourself because you can't face up to anything, but at least you're not anxious. So in that singular moment, my life, my entire perspective on life was radically changed. I mean, it's a big deal when I look back on it. Up until that point, I had no 
clue about life. Now I knew everything. I knew the secret of life was booze. As long as I had access to that, I had little to fear. And so naturally, it became a very high priority. And that's where I kept it, to the best of my ability. And that night, I um, had that wonderful experience. And then I said, gee, if three drinks did that, what about 20? <laughs> and I found out what 20 did. It makes you ill and you just, just feel like you're going to die. And in the morning, I sat there that sick. And the thought occurred to me, are you going to drink tonight? And I said, of course I am. <laughs> this uh, puking and dying is nothing compared to what I had last night. So this is, it's worth it. So I had established a relationship with alcohol where I would, without realizing it, do anything in order to keep drinking. And so there went the grades. There went athletics. Now I'm getting arrested. Now I might not graduate. Everything is falling apart. But I don't care. Because I can go fix it at the end of the day. I'd walk in, oh, I got so many problems. Just amazing, all the problems. And on the third drink, people would say, how's it going? Great. Great. Man, life is great. Life is great. And it was. Because my perception had just been changed. When I looked around, it was great. When I sobered up and looked around, it was terrible. It was very simple. Don't ever be sober. I mean, hell. I, you don't need a genius to figure that one out. Just always have booze around. Uh, so anyway, the Korean War was going on. The draft was still going for the Korean War, and um, everybody had to join the military, so a bunch of us joined the Marine Corps. We signed up for that. And uh, it sounded cool to me. I didn't know much about it. My uncle was a big pilot in World War II in the uh, Air Corps. And so I got in there, and it was a rude awakening, but after five or six months, I said, man, I have found home. They made me part of something. They break your individualism, and then you become part of something, and that felt good. The first time I've ever sort of felt that um, there was discipline in life and, and there was purpose, I could see that. And I really enjoyed it, and I saw a movie about pilots, and they looked like they were having a better time than digging holes in the ground. So I signed up for flight school and made it and came to Pensacola. I got married. And we went off to Pensacola. I got airsick on the way down. That was a small <laughs> step in the wrong direction. But after about uh, six or seven flights, I got rid of the motion sickness, and I did very well. They were saying, oh, you're, you're a good pilot. You're doing great. So I got through. It took a year and a half. Finally, we get through all the carrier stuff and the formation and all that, and I came into... Um, a training squadron at El Toro in California and got into the Marine fighters, got their training, and now we're sent overseas and the war's over. I'm in a frontline fighter squadron with real cool guys. God, it was just wonderful. And they played hard and they drank hard. I mean, they worked hard and they played hard. And, boy, when we got together, after whatever had to be done was done, 
We sat around the table. The colonel ordered the drinks. Bring my boys another round of drinks. I didn't even have to sneak drinks. They were drinking at the same rate I was. That was very rare. Most alcoholics have to go, man, are we going to order another round? i got to go to the bathroom. So you go to the bathroom. Give me a double scotch bartender. Okay, thank you. We have a double. We go back. You want one, Sandy? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. But I didn't have to do that. It was just, uh, God, that was a lot of fun. And, of course, I was, when you're younger, you can handle this kind of stuff, all the abuse that we do to our mind and our body. So I would bounce back and get up at, Five in the morning, go fly again, and all these things. And the only um, hindrance that I remember was our maintenance officer told me one time that he was going to get a squadron and get all good pilots, and he wanted me in his squadron. But then he said, but I wouldn't let you drink. Now, I did not ask him about that. I pretended I didn't hear it. Because I, that sounded bad to know whatever he meant. And it wasn't until I got to AA that I realized in a group of heavy drinkers, my drinking scared them. Because alcoholics, we, we do something beyond just drinking a lot. We have a commitment to drinking that other people notice. Like we would get out of our deathbed and crawl a mile just to get a shot of vodka. Whereas they might back off on that one. So that was my first clue. And we ended up having six children, and um, it, I had a lot of jobs in the Marine Corps. They were wonderful. Even the tour with the uh, First Marine Division was an honor. But the disease of alcoholism was taking over, and um, I was starting to really have problems with withdrawals because I wouldn't drink for Ten hours, I get in an airplane, I needed a drink. I mean, when the draws are coming, you better get some alcohol in there. And so I was having some bad experiences flying, physical experiences, mental. My heart would start racing. I would start to pass out. I wouldn't be able to see too clearly. And I was the only guy in the plane. And... These were, you know, they're high-performance planes and all that, and I'm just going, God. But there was no alcohol programs. I never heard of AA. And I just said, you're just going to have to keep doing this. In other words, I saw no choice. You just, you just go up there and hope that it isn't that bad again. And there would be okay days, but then there would be days when I would have one hand in the ejection seat and fly the mission. I was in the photo squadron during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and... All the controls were on the stick, so you could take pictures and do all kinds of things with one hand up here. And my theory was that if I passed out, I'd fire the seat. I'd go out, shoot opens automatically, I'm safe, the plane crashes, problem solved. That was the way I, I looked at it. We had a problem, now we got a solution. And I'm sure... In your profession, you came up with things that weren't in the handbook. (laughs) Am I right or wrong? I've heard some doctors talk about some of Oh, my God. Um, This came to an end on a flight of four airplanes coming back from across country. And I mention this because... 
two years ago, an amazing thing happened. But anyway, I was in this flight of four planes. It wasn't the photo plane. It was the radar, and it was easy to fly. There was two, a radar guy in the right seat, and I had to get out of the plane. I, I just had, get out now. I guess I thought I was going to pass out, and you better get out, or you won't be able to get out. Well, I looked over, and I went, Jesus, this guy doesn't know how to fly. And it has no ejection seat. You've got to slide out the bottom somehow. And I wasn't even sure I remembered how that worked. So I declared an oxygen emergency. And when you do that, the flight leader has to find a place to land right away because you could pass out from bad oxygen. So within two or three minutes, we're on the ground and Air Force Base and check out that oxygen and go up to the club. And I'm having a few drinks. I feel a little better. But the next morning... When we went down the flight line, I looked at that airplane, and I turned to the flight leader of our four planes, and I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. So my alcoholism just instructed me to give up my career. And I, I did it without even a fight. I said, I'm not going to get back in that thing. And he said, what do you mean you're not going to fly? You've been flying for 14 years. It's your whole life. I said, I'm not going to fly anymore. Why? And I would never give a reason. And they made me go back. I had to, somebody else flew back. I was sad to see the colonel. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't want to fly anymore. And I would not give him a reason. So he had no choice but to send up the headquarters Marine Corps to get a new assignment, which was going to take about three months and I was so full of shame, I could barely go to work, and I couldn't look any of the other pilots in the eyes. So I did the legal work, and I just sat there sweating and feeling ashamed, knowing that these guys were looking in going, what a piece of crap that guy is sitting in there. It was three months of that. I finally got transferred out and had another assignment for... About a year and a half, and then I had a grand mal seizure and set up a whole series of things into the nut ward for six months, and that was kind of where I found AA. Well, about two years ago, I was out in California at the Brentwood Group, and um, they get about four or 500 people, and it's a beginner's meeting, so they get somebody who's been around a while, and he talks on a topic, and then they ask questions. They raise their hand. Chuck Chamberlain used to go there a lot, and I'm sure Clancy's been there on a number of times. And a guy was getting, or a woman was getting her 30-year medallion, and her husband was driving her. He's not an alcoholic, but he's very familiar with AA. And she told him who was leading, and he said, was he a pilot? And she said, yeah. She said, I think I know him. Tell him to come out here. So I went out there and never saw this guy. And he said, uh, 1962, you were flying in a flight of four F3Ds coming back on the cross country. You declared an oxygen emergency, and you never flew again. And I said, God damn, how do you know that? (laughs) And he said, I was in the plane with you. (laughs) And uh, so you go, what are the odds of finding a guy who was in the plane? Turns out he wasn't a radar guy. He was another pilot uh, who had been recalled from American Airlines for the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we were flying away from because a hurricane was coming to Cherry Point. So the brave pilots fly all the planes away somewhere safe and drink until the hurricane goes by. So 
No radar guys were getting in on that deal. And so the next day he came up to uh, Oxnard and brought a whole bunch of photographs and all these wonderful things. Remember the current? So I'm looking, and I didn't save any photographs or anything. Cool planes and all this. And then he said, did you know how popular you were in that squadron? It was breaking our hearts that you were leaving. The colonel did everything he could. He was going crazy to fix this. It just, oh, my God, were we sad when you left. And I said to myself, well, that's not the way I remember it. <laughs> so I went back 42 years ago and changed my past. And now when I think about that, those three months, I'm very comforted that everyone was sad that I was leaving and they were all my friends and no one had bad thoughts about me at all. Isn't that comforting to go back and get a terrible thing out of your past and change it? That's what spirituality is. That's why we get rid of old ideas. That's why we get rid of old perceptions. That's why we have sponsors. That's why we go through the steps. So that we can re-see everything through spiritual glasses. And when we do that, a great burden is lifted off of our shoulders because of this new perception. All problems come from not seeing things right. I remember in the beginning, I would um, go to my sponsor. How often do you go to your sponsor? I mean, you know, like two days go by and then I have to call him. Bill, 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 the sky is falling again. <laughs> okay, come over and tell me what part of the sky is falling. So then I would come over. My wife and the Marine Corps and the... Uh, they're going to get me, and whatever was going on. And he would go, well, geez, that's really interesting. But, you know, um, you've been sober six months now. And you're the coffee maker in our home group. People really love the coffee. And you get the cake, and they really like that. And whenever you give a talk, people say, you know, that guy really gives a It's really amazing. And then out in Falls Church, they like you out there. I was talking to the people out there. And then over here, you know, he started through talking about a whole bunch of things. And when he got through, I said, well, if you look at it that way, <laughs> things are pretty good. So what changed? It changed perception. That's all that changed. The facts stayed the same, whatever they are. And that's what awakenings do. And that's why we go through this painful process of taking your views on everything and ripping them away and see if we're going to replace them or get new ones. Now, this is a very easy process except for human pride. It does not feel this is necessary in my case. I may be wrong about one or two isolated little obscure things. But in the vast majority of my life, I understand that I'm the one living it. Who would know better than I? And my sponsor would go, anyone. Anyone would know better than you. That's a shock to the human pride that our assessment of our own lives is so faulty that we need help. 
our own assessment of our own life. I mean, who would know your own life better than you? Turns out you don't. You don't have you haven't got a clue about your own life. The only thing you have a clue about is the story that you made up about your own life. <laughs> remember that speaker? I, I still remember that guy. He used to say, my story is divided into two parts. What happened during the years that I drank and what I thought happened during the years that I drank. <laughs> and that's a classic line and it could apply to any part of your life. My childhood is divided into two parts. What happened when I was a child and what I thought happened. My perception of it. My sister and I attended the same Catholic church. She still goes there. It's the most comforting place. From the day she walked in, she felt welcome, comforted, loved, the whole thing. I'm sitting right next to her. <laughs> I, I didn't see it that way. I, I thought it was some Gestapo torture place or something. It, that Latin and the incense and those nuns with the little stuff, what the hell was that all about in there? They're getting you, and, the, and then those confessionals, I could still see them way back there, these doors, and you went in, and they were gathering evidence for later. <laughs> I, oh, my God, don't tell them anything. They're going to use it against you on J-Day. You know the day when it's boom. And I already knew I didn't have a chance. I couldn't stop. My mind just was obsessed with impure thoughts. Oh, my God, couldn't stop them. They still come through the neighborhood once in a while. <laughs> I don't have to confess them anymore. So, And uh, all the way to the crucifix. One day that I sat there looking at that and it just spoke to me and said, Son, do you see this? Yes. Well, that's what God did to his only son that he loved. <laughs> Guess what he's going to do to you? So... When you're six, seven, eight years old and you get this stuff, it seems real. And you know better than to tell anybody that you're thinking these things. So you go on and that is your official truth 40 years later. We're still living with those perceptions and they're painful and they're inaccurate. And we never realized we could go back and redo them all, get rid of them, get free of old ideas, getting free of old ideas, free of old perceptions. And um, when I think about AA and the story of AA, and I think about how each of us has a story, and um, we're the author. We put it together. Every event that happened, you put the adjective on it. Oh, another crappy event. The event itself is just event. It's raining. Yeah, but it's raining on the day I was going to play golf. This is rotten rain. I hate the fact that it's raining. 
So I'm the one who turned a rainy day into a tragedy worth drinking over for months. I was looking forward to that date for two years. Going to go down and play that big course in South Carolina. And look at this. I get rained on. Thanks a lot, God. I really appreciate it. So we took rain and turned it into a tragedy. We could write a Shakespearean play about the anguish that I went through of not playing golf that day. Well, we, we do this for a lot of years, and each storyline may be just one thread. But when you keep producing these lines, it's like a spider when he starts a web. There's just two or three strands, and then it's solid. And those bugs can't even get through. Only we turn it into like an egg. And we're in the middle. And that is our world. And we're the only one living there. That's a hell of a place to live. In your own story. Isn't that amazing? And everybody on the world is living in their own little world. 6.7 billion worlds. How do you like that? And somebody might say, yeah, but there's the real world. And the answer is, maybe there is, but nobody lived there. <laughs> so what's the object, using that analogy, of spirituality? Destroy that world. Destroy it. Take it apart. Idea by idea. Like a bird coming out of an egg. At first, it's tough. It's really tough. I can't imagine the courage that it takes to start banging away at this thing that's your whole world. And it may seem that way to us. This is frightening. I'm, this is familiar. You know, I know it sucks, but it's familiar. We will stay with things that are very painful because they're familiar. So don't, take it, don't think it doesn't take any courage to take a shot at separating from all those old ideas. It sure does. But we're surrounded by other people who have done it. And they look happy. And they inspire us to try it. And so when, when Bill writes that we are given a glimpse of God's kingdom, he's talking about the reality that exists outside of our story. And finally, when we break through, we go, that's wrong. Like this guy said, 1962, those three months, totally wrong. This is what it is. There's a little glimpse, a little bit of light. And then we just keep working at it. And we keep working at it. And then we suddenly realize there is another reality. And it's on a different dimension than the one we were living in. And the steps and the sponsor and whatever this power is will take us there. The problem is we have to do it. We have to decide that that's what we want and not settle as Bill says in the sixth step in the 12 and 12, 
for as much perfection as will get us by. Settle for pretty good sobriety. Anybody ever do that? I'm going to settle for, I got pretty good. Pretty good. You know how long pretty good lasts? You get sick of pretty good pretty quick. Because it doesn't stay pretty good. It's just, how you doing? Yeah, all right, all right. Oh, now it's not pretty good. It's all right. And then it's eh. So when we get to this point in our program, it becomes an individual effort. This is where Bill said separates the men from the boys, the girls from the women, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How much happiness do you want? And the funny thing is, there's an action verb that's involved in all of spirituality. And it's an action verb that doesn't sound like an action verb. Do you know action verbs? Hit the ball. Run to first base. You know, heavy duty. Here's the, the action verb. Are you ready? Let go. That's it. That's it. Just boop, let go. Do you know how hard letting go is? Whoa. Yeah, we don't let go easy. We hold on to these ideas. We hold on to our way. Of course we have to let go of alcohol. It was killing us. Okay, boop, you can have that much. But I got the rest. Don't worry, I'll take care of finances. I'll take care of chasing women around. I'll take care of running. I'll take care of this. I'll take care of that. Where do you want God's help? I don't need it right now. Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. No spiritual growth here. I'm just growing on my own. (laughs) We have to struggle to grow spiritually against our own ego forever. In the beginning, it's just to make a break from the past and to even try some of these things. But you know what happens with spirituality? It works. You do get happier. You do have friends. And your health returns. And you're all excited about life. It's wonderful. Clearly, you don't need as much help as you used to. Really. That's like being in a helium balloon. Say, I don't need the helium anymore. I'm doing fine. I'm up here at 5,000 feet. I think I can handle it on my own now. Thanks, helium. We're not up there on our own. We're being held up there. But we like to take credit. like to take credit for it. And so it becomes quite a challenge. And that's why we need each other. That's why home groups... People you see on a regular basis. People you go to dinner with after the meetings. At least have three people that you have officially walked up to and said, you have my permission to stick your nose in my business. Because that's the greatest thing that can happen to you, is to have people that close to you so they'll walk up to you and they'll go, Martha, what the hell is wrong? (laughs) And when you say nothing, they go, no, 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 what? is wrong. So we learned there's such a powerful thing here. 
We were never meant to get through life on our own. It's an illusion. We need help in order to get through life. Why do you suppose it was set up that way? When you think of the entire spiritual picture. Why else would we seek God if we could get through on our own? If we could achieve peace of mind and happiness on our own? So there had to be established a thing called free will so that we could go out and get all screwed up <laughs> and then make a decision maybe we we're going to come back home and then come back home and hand in our free will and tell God, I can't handle it. You can have it. Made a decision to turn our free will over to the care of God. And then we're going to let spiritual guidance be in charge, and scientifically, we get to compare the results. How's it going with you not in charge compared to how was it going when you were in charge? That's a lot to give up, isn't it? What's the single greatest problem that people have? Things not going your way, right? Covers everything. <laughs> Covers everything. Things aren't going my way, love life. Things aren't going my way financially. Things aren't going, I'm not getting promoted. Things aren't going my way. When we're on our own, there's only one way to fix that. Cause things to go your way. Go out there and <clears throat> force it. We come in here and we go, oh, there's a much easier way. Really? What's that? Don't have a way. <laughs> then nothing cannot go your way. Whatever happens is cool. I know, but I have to... See how hard it is to do that? What about trusting God? Yeah, but God may not want me to have enough money. So I'll trust Him partially, but i got to... I'll put some money in, then I'll trust them a little more. And when I get 50 grand, then I'll trust them all the way. I'll go, hey, okay, God, you got it. And my sponsor pointed out, hey, even money has a warning label. In God, we trust. <laughs> so there we are. The very thing we devote so much energy to is telling us, don't trust me. I could get you a new car, but I can't get you happiness and peace of mind. So it's fun. I look at this, and I mess up just as much as everybody else, but it's a game now. It really is. And now I'm gonna, I've got a few more minutes, so I'll tell you how you win this game. Are you ready for the game rules? Okay, here we go. The old rules were whoever gets the most is the winner. Wouldn't you say that summarizes material life? Whoever gets the most is the winner. Okay, how much do you got? How much do you got? <laughs> and then we know the winner. But now we're in the spiritual domain. Now who wins? The least disturbed wins. So if we had a contest tonight, how would you do? Where do you think you'd place in this room if we measured who's the least disturbed? So in order to win at this, we have to make that a high priority. 
And if you want to know where the ground rules are, they're in the 10th step in the 12 and 12. And it's very simple. It starts out with that axiom that if we're disturbed, here we go again, there's something wrong with us, not them. Yeah, but my boss came in and he insulted me in front of everyone. Where do I fit in? You're disturbed. That's what's wrong with you. You're disturbed. I know, but my boss made me disturbed. I know, but you're still disturbed. You lose. You have to get undisturbed when your boss treats you unfairly. Oh, no, I don't think I want to do that. Okay, you lose. You mean you could stay undisturbed when he comes in and goes, you're a jerk? Yeah. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, you never tried. You never made it a top priority. You never sought help. You never called someone when you got disturbed and said, I just got disturbed over this. What should I do? I do that with people all the time, and it's only going to take 45 or 50 seconds because there's only two outcomes, only two answers you get. And when I call up and I go, let me tell you what happened. Can I run it by you? Yeah, okay. Well, I went in there and I said to this, and then they come over there and, bam, can you believe that? And they go, wow, what that person did to you is outrageous. Oh, my God. Forgive them. Okay. Then you'll be undisturbed. Outrageous treatment, unfair treatment, forgive them. Then the second half is, Sandy, you're the one that screwed up. Go make an amend. Those are the only two answers. Forgive them or make an amend. Now, I had a chance last year to see this stuff in action. And when my daughter was murdered and then the other daughter died three months later of alcoholism. And I had seen someone on television forgive someone who murdered her son that day. They asked her how she felt about the boy that did the killing. And she said, I've already forgiven him. And she was at complete peace with herself. So she taught me that you don't need to wait to forgive. There's no waiting period. The power of forgiveness comes in the moment that it's happening. Because when it's applied then, it eliminates hatred and anger and resentment, and you only have sorrow. And God helps you with sorrow. What a lesson. That's what the present moment means when it says live in the present moment. The time for forgiveness is in this minute. Then on the second daughter, I I knew it was coming, and I had read this in a spiritual book, and I remember when I was getting the news that I knew exactly the steps to take. And I just share this, and then I'm finished. Um, When you get news, good or bad, there is a small time period before you react to it. Think about it. You get a shocking news, and then you go, I'm going to go over there and sit down and then let it in. And I think everybody understands what I'm talking about. There is that moment. This is what was recommended to me. During that moment, turn to God and tell him this event is not going to change how I feel about God. 
Go up there and reassure God that this that you're going to deal with shortly will never change my love for you. And stay there and just go, I promise you that. That's why I'm here. That's why I came here first. First things first. Come here, just going to assure you, this will not change how I feel about you. Thank you. I appreciate being there. Now I'm going to go back and react to the situation. Guess who comes with you? Guess who comes with you? He says, well, let me come along. Let me help you see this correctly. And... Once again, you're allowed to accept it in the moment, and all you have is sorrow. When you think about the disturbances and the events that have happened in your life, it's the hatred, resentment, and anger that are the most painful parts. At least that's been my life. So I just throw that little lesson in for what it's worth. And I'm getting ready to wrap up, and I've been here forever, I think. Um, I just want to tell those of you that are new and you're at your first conference, you are in the middle of what is known as a spiritual society. It is a unique thing in the world. It's, it's the most amazing event that occurred in the last century, is to have a spiritual society which is sustained on its own. No one's in charge of it. And yet it grows. It succeeds. There's nobody in charge. Nobody can force you to do anything. We all misbehave before we came here and something told us that I think I'll stop misbehaving. Because the success of AA is necessary for me to have a happy life. So I'm going to keep it together. And... If you get a sponsor, there's only one question you have to ask, and it'll guarantee success. The question is, what do, you, what do I do next? Then go do it. And then you go home and keep track of the results of simply asking, what do I do next, and doing it. You are going to be astounded. You are going to find a new freedom and a new happiness. You're going to see everything differently. And you will be unable to stop yourself from trying to pass this on to the next suffering alcoholic. So hang on. Put on a seatbelt. You're in for a great ride. Thank you all very much. Oh.